Go to Matthew chapter 3, verse 10. We'll start at 10. I'll start preaching at 12 today. Matthew 3, 10. We've got to catch our context because the text out of context is a pretext. Always set your sermon in the setting. Make sure everybody knows what the background is. And today we're going to talk about Jesus being baptized. How's that, folks? Two people baptized in the worship service, and we're going to talk about Jesus being baptized. Isn't that great? It's wonderful. And we're going to be at Matthew 3.10. Ruthie, you ready to read? I'm so ready. That's pretty good music, wasn't it? Oh, yes, I was just saying that. Encore service? Yep. <clears throat> Maybe pretty long. Well, see, the problem is, if I come, I'm preaching. See, just, we, tur just turn out the lights when you're done. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I mean, see, the music is so good, we could go home after the music, but it ain't going to happen. <laughs> if I prepare it, I'm going to preach it, okay? So, and I've prepared it, so we're going to preach it. But the music is a blessing here. I hope you understand that. This is our seventh interim since we left second. Seven interims in six years. I, 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 think, I think you folks, you need to go to church occasionally somewhere else. And come back, you'll appreciate what you have. Well, we've never had Moses and Mrs. Moses, too. That's true. You know. uh, Fraser, who was over here, was Moses at Sight and Sound for years. And his wife, Christina, was playing the keyboard over there. And all and, the other amazing musicians. And all everybody here. else up here, we're grateful for them. It's good. Fraser has been a good friend of mine for good years. All right, let's go. Matthew chapter 3, verse 10. Matthew chapter 3, verse 10. Would let's you go. please stand for the reading of God's beautiful Amen. word? Amen. Wonderful. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. These are the words of John the Baptist. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised and ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. I baptize with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. But someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not worthy even to be his slave or to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, and he is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat right. with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk him out of it. I'm the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said. So why are you coming to me? But Jesus said, it should be done. For we must carry out all that God requires. And so John agreed to baptize Jesus. Would you pray with me, please? Father dear, how precious you are. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus. You could have sent a, you know, you know, the church talks about militant and all that. And 
you could have sent an admiral or a general or all the armies that could ever be mustered for us. But you sent your son. Amazing. And you sent him not as a <clears throat> not as an adult, but as a tiny baby. And not just an honored baby in a mansion. But little baby Jesus in a stable. And we are so unworthy. Right. That you would send your only son in a form so vulnerable. Seems I hear him crying right now. Thank you that you should entrust so precious a one to us. May we not fail you. Amen. May the people in here, myself included, may we represent you well. May we love with such a sacrificial love, a love for others putting ourselves last. Thank you for this wonderful people, the love they show to each other and to us and to you. We love you, and we thank you, Lord, for that honey in the rock. Amen. And thank you, thank you, thank you for your, your sacrifice on the cross. We will not forget. We love you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, dear. <coughs> love you so much, Dolly. Thank you, baby. Matthew chapter 3, verse 12. Matthew chapter 3, verse 12. John the Baptist has already said that the axe is ready. God's ready to cut the tree down. It'll be 44 years now until Jerusalem is destroyed. The axe hasn't fallen yet, but it's coming. And here's John out here preaching and saying, every tree that doesn't straighten up and bear good fruit is going to be cut down. And they said, now I baptize you with water. But it only symbolizes a true baptism, baptism by the Holy Spirit, spirit baptism, spirit fire baptism. Somebody coming, I'm not even worthy to do the act of a slave. And now we're ready at verse 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The image is one that the Israelites would have been familiar with. It's winnowing. Watch the screen. You're going to see it now. This is winnowing. When you take your harvest, you take the wheat, you beat it up, you've got stalk, hulls, and everything else. The actual grain that's valuable is heavy. It falls to the ground and the air blows away all the chaff, all the straw, the hull. This is done all over the world. It's been being done for thousands of years. Wheat has this amazing, amazing trait that the kernel, that kernel down on the ground, that is heavier than all the rest of that plant. And therefore, it can be winnowed. Now, the way they get there is... They go to a flat piece of land, especially on a hillside. That's what you're hoping for. And then on the hillside, you're hoping for a breeze. And they bring a threshing sled. They lay all the, they've gone through the fields. They've cut all the wheat. You've got everything. You've got the stems and everything. You throw it on the ground. And here comes an animal pulling his heavy sled. That's called threshing. 
It smashes everything. It goes back and forth. Back and forth, smashing, smashing, smashing. And then they get a breeze, or in many parts of the world, they get a fan, and they start throwing this stuff in front of the fan. It blows away the hulls and all the straw because it's lighter. But that precious kernel, the thing that causes people not to starve to death, the thing that has fed the world for thousands of years, wheat, the kernel falls to the ground. And when it hits the ground, what falls on the ground, they pick it up and they treasure it and they put it in their barns because it is very valuable. And so John says this is the way God is looking at his people right now. He's threshing. It's painful. He's winnowing. He's got his pitchfork. He's throwing in the air. And he said, but now what's valuable? Those of you that love him, he's going to make sure that you're taken care of. He's going to take you into the barn. And for those of us who know the Lord, we are his wheat. We are valuable to him. And the Bible says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. In other words, valuable to God is when his saints die. And it is the ultimate picture of when he takes his wheat into the barn. The greatest barn, heaven. And we have that great passage, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. And always remember, wherever there's a shadow, there's a light on the other side casting it. And when you're in the wheat, when you're part of the part that falls to the bottom, when you're part of that which is really valuable to God, There'll come a day you'll walk through the valley of the shadow and you'll step into the barn, into the light on the other side. That's the wheat. But what about the chaff? John said that God will treasure, take care of the wheat. But now the rest of it, this would represent the people who do not know Jesus. This would represent those who have never given their life to the Lord. He says they will be burned like chaff, just like starting a fire. Isn't it interesting? In verse 11, the image of the fire was used to burn away our sin. The spirit fire baptism. We live our lives with the Spirit of God purging us from sin, with an internal fire that burns within us and removes our sin. But look at verse 12. The same fire that purges us from sin, if we refuse to let the sin go, the fire burns us with the chaff. And there are a lot of people who don't like this. There are a lot of people who would love to take the winnowing fork, like a pitchfork, They'd like to take the winnowing fork out of Jesus' hand. They want to say, everybody's saved. Everybody's going to go to heaven. Everybody's fine. You, you can try to do that all you want to. He has the winnowing fork. And there are those who are wheat, those who know him and love him, and they will go to heaven when they die. And then there are those who are chaff, who do not know him. He distinguishes between good and evil, between saved and lost. He makes a difference. And someday, ultimately, we'll see the difference. All right, now, verse 13, verse 13. That's some pretty heavy preaching right there, by the way. Verse 13. Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan to be baptized by him. 
John the Baptist's popularity is at a fever pitch. If you want to know the year, it's right at 26 A.D. if you're accustomed to that. To be baptized, Jesus walked 40 miles. That uh, makes the seven steps into our baptistry look kind of measly. Why would Jesus walk 40 miles to be baptized in the presence of thousands of people at this moment? It's a great question. It's a profound question. It is very important that we understand Jesus was willing to leave obscurity, being unknown, when it was a time of repentance. For the first time in centuries, the people of God were getting right with God. They were repenting. They themselves, they were for the first time admitting that they were sinners. They'd never heard preaching like this. Repent, repent. they never heard anything like that. And it was at this time when the people of God are making a difference, that's in their lives, that's when Jesus showed up. Now listen to me. Stay with me. The desperate need in the United States of America today, now look at my good eye, the desperate need in the United States of America is repentance among Christians. The problem ultimately in America is not what's going on around us in the world, even as bad as it is. Now, now I understand. We get so frustrated at the horrible sin that's becoming just common. People calling bad good, good, bad. I mean, I mean we look around, we see sin being multiplied. Sin is let loose in the land. I, I don't minimize that. We don't trivialize that. But we as Christians, we look at that and we tend to think that God is going to judge us by what's going on in the nation. We, the church, tend to blame lost people for the problems. You got to get past that, folks. You got to quit being mad at lost people for acting like lost people. You, you, you got to realize that even a, a sinner might be a lot worse than you are on the surface, but God may be more displeased with you because you're not living up to the standard He meant for you to have. The church never has the freedom to justify their coldness, their lackluster lives, their lack of repentance. We never have the right to blame problems on outsiders. This is what was wrong in Israel. I mean, the Israelites, they were good people compared to the Romans. If you think 21st century America is bad, you need to study 1st century Rome. Our country at its worst, very worst, is like a children's kindergarten party compared to the way Rome was in the 1st century. We, we, can't even we, we can't even pretend to imagine how sinful Roman culture was. You, you can't even make up stuff as bad as it was. So what had happened to Israel? Israel compares itself to the Romans. They compare themselves to the Edomites. They compare themselves to the Moabites. They compare themselves to what's going on in the culture, and they decide somewhere along the way, it's so bad out there, they're so awful, we must be okay. And so this goes on for generations. And then here comes this preacher named John the Baptist out in the wilderness, and he says, don't worry about the Romans. The problem is right here. 
We are the problem. And so they came out of Jerusalem. The Bible says all of Jerusalem, the whole city came. The whole region of Judea came. Thousands of them came. They never heard anything like this, that maybe we are the problem. There will be no revival in our churches until we admit we are the problem. We are the problem. One of the things we've got to do. Let me take a drink. I want to make sure you hear this next sentence. One of the things you've got to, we, we, we have got to quit doing. We have got to quit saying, love the, love the sinner and hate the sin. Stop it. Don't ever say that again as long as you live. Stop it. Because we have proven we do a lot better job of hating than we do of loving. Love the, sin, love the sinner, hate the sin. Stop it. Stop it. The culture considers us the hitmen of our society. They think we're the meanest people in town. Because we say things like that and they look at our lives and we don't look like we love them. We don't look like we care. I prefer the quote the first time I ever heard it was Daniel Hood. He was my college minister at the time. He's the founder of Hill City Church. Daniel Hood looked me right in the eye and he said, Pastor, may we be better served to say this. Love the sinner Hate my sin. And I've used it ever since. Quit saying, love the sin and hate the sinner. You say instead, love the sinner and hate my sin. Quit being upset at lost people for acting like lost people. Get into your prayer closet and cry out to God. And ask Him, when was the last time you even talked to somebody out there about being saved? When was the last time you even cared that they're going to hell? You don't have to worry about punishing them. You don't have to get mad at them. They're going to hell, friends. They're going to hell. Stop it. They're not the problem. Get in your prayer closet, down on your face before God, and you pray, and you cry out, and you scream and say, God, I have failed you. I've not witnessed anybody. I've not cared. Nothing in my heart is concerned. I haven't shed a tear in years. My chin has not quivered in a long time over lostness. They are not the problem. We are the problem. Jesus showed up. Give me. Give me now. Get me. Jesus showed up when his people were repenting. All right. Now, verse 14. Lean over to the person next to you and say, man, that's kind of tough. Go ahead and do it. Get it off your chest. And then we can get on with the rest of the sermon. Thank you to all three of you who did. Verse 14. But John tried to prevent him. The two greatest men who ever lived are face to face. Jesus said John was the greatest, second greatest person who ever lived, second only to the least in the kingdom, probably referring to himself. So the two greatest men who ever lived are standing in a Jordan River, maybe as wide as the here to the wall over there. Not a very big river here. Thousands of people are around. And Jesus, because his people, the Israelites are repenting, he decides to show up. He walks down in the water and he says to this preacher, I want you to baptize me. And you're talking about deja vu. Many years earlier, John the Baptist's mother 
was visited by the mother of Jesus. And when the mother of Jesus arrived, John, in his mother's belly, leaped. And Elizabeth felt it. And she said to Mary, she said, I'm not worthy. Why did you come to me? I'm not worthy. The mother of the one said, I'm not worthy that you even come to see me. Now, 20-something years has gone by. 30 years has gone by. And now here they are, the two babies that were in the womb. And you're seeing the exact same thing happen again. The one who was in the womb of the mother who said, I'm not worthy for this. Now, that son is in the water looking at Jesus. And he is saying, I'm outranked here. He knew he was number two. He knew he wasn't number one. And John wasn't about to put his hand on Jesus. John somehow looked into those eyes and he knew he was looking into sinless perfection. Somehow John recognized unflawed holiness in Jesus. And John said, I am not worthy to baptize you. He knew he did not deserve this privilege. This was too high an honor. He did not want to presume Understand, folks, now listen, listen, John was jealously guarding the honor of Jesus. Now, I want to ask you a question. Listen to me very closely. Are you jealous for Jesus? Do you have a desire to make him famous? Are you bothered at school or at work when nobody even mentions him? Or have you lived in that world so long you don't even... It doesn't bother you anymore that people are not paying attention? Are we bothered if he does not receive his due? Can you sit through a movie or a TV show and hear somebody say, Jesus Christ! And it no longer upsets you? John was jealous for Jesus. Let, let, let me get really personal. I, I, I'm, I'm a big Branson fan. I love to go to Branson. I love those, you know. And every show in Branson, they try to have a, a gospel song. Now, listen to me. I love Branson. I am not being critical of Branson. I love it. You can bury me down there if you want to. I mean, I, man, I love it. But let me tell you something. Watch me now. Is it not surprising that often when they do their one gospel song, the song is, I'll fly away? Have you noticed the name Jesus is not mentioned in that song? Did things like that bother you? Did something in your heart leap a little bit at the beginning of the Super Bowl? When it's getting ready to start, and all of a sudden there's Jesus on the screen. Now, I don't agree with everything that was on the screen. I, I don't know that. I know it wasn't perfect. I understand that. But I, I wanted to jump up and applaud. He gets us. People acting like Christians. That's, that's a phenomenal thing. And these little pictures. I know it wasn't perfect. But I was so grateful, Jesus, my master, my savior, my Lord, his name was exalted for the whole world to see. And here's John in this river, and he is in awe of Jesus. Let me tell you something. You ever tell what being a good Christian is? Listen to me. Being a good Christian is living a life where you never get over the astonishment him. Thank you, sweet Ruthie, for your prayer this morning. That's what it means to be a Christian. You never get over it. You never get past him. He's beautiful. He's precious. You are jealous 
for him. All right, back to verse 14. But John tried to prevent him saying, I have the need to be baptized by you. And yet you are coming to me. Now, folks, John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit from the time he was born. That doesn't mean he was saved, but he was prepared for the Lord's work from the moment of his birth, the first chapter of Luke says. And yet here he is, had been filled with the Spirit of God from his birth to do the purpose that God gave him for. He's been preaching on repentance. He's standing before Jesus, and he says, I, I, I need to be baptized by you. In other words, he's saying, I need to repent more. I need more holiness. This is a part of what it means to be a Christ follower. You live your whole life knowing that you have never arrived. You've not gotten there yet. In fact, C.S. Lewis, one of his most neglected quotes, one of the most neglected quotes of C.S. Lewis is, The holier we become, the more we mourn over the unholiness that remains in us. You see, as you get closer to God, you don't, you, you don't feel like you're getting closer to God. You, 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 don't, you don't wake up one day and say, boy, I'm doing pretty good. No, the closer you get, the more you understand how awful this part is. One of the ways you know that you're growing in Him is not that you become satisfied, not that you begin to feel good about yourself, but that you, you understand this part where you're not all the way there yet. You understand it better how bad it is. Here's John the Baptist saying, I... I don't, I don't deserve to baptize you. I need what you've got. Charles Spurgeon, the greatest pastor we ever produced, the greatest pastor of the modern era, Charles Spurgeon, later in life said, we must strive after holiness with an agony of desire. This, this man walked close to God, and here he is in his old years, agonizing, realizing the closer he gets, the more he hates this part of where he's not there yet. That's the way John is right now. Now, verse 15. But Jesus, answering, said to him, Allow it at this time, for in this way it is, it is fitting for us to fulfill all unrighteousness. I mean, all righteousness, not unrighteousness, all righteousness. Here's the significant question. Why did Jesus submit to a baptism of repentance when he had no sins to repent of? These two ladies were baptized today. That's beautiful. That's so precious. Thank you for your good response to that. That's just precious. They were sinners. They are sinners. They knew they were sinners. When you were baptized, you know you were a sinner. You, you go into the water. You know that your sins are paid for by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But here's Jesus going down to the river. The whole nation, they're all being baptized. They're coming down there. They're repenting of their sins. They're saying, I am a sinner. And they're going down in the water and they're being baptized. And the question is, why did Jesus, who was perfect, never committed to sin, why did Jesus submit to the baptism of John the Baptist? His answer was to John, we've got to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, being right with God. We have to make sure that every detail of my relationship before God is right. There were three things that Jesus was doing when he went down in that water. Number one, he was identifying with the sinners he came to save. Sinners were repenting. They were getting right with God. And Jesus is thrilled. He's happy. And he says, 
I want them to know I am satisfied with what they are doing. He wanted them to know he was their friend, the friend of sinners. He was their partner. He was identifying with them. What they were doing mattered to him. Even though he was sinless, he was the friend of sinners. He was willing to be their servant and said, I want people to know I love these sinners. If I were to draw a spot, a circle right here, if I were to draw a circle right here, and God were to say to me, now I'm going to tell you what it means to please me, what it means for you to do. There's a spotlight from heaven. These are the kind of people that I really like. If God were to say from heaven, now stay with me, I really like left-handed Lutherans. You know what everybody, every one of you in this room would do? You'd spend the rest of your life learning how to be left-handed, and you'd go join a Lutheran church today. Because where the circle is drawn, if that's where God is blessing, then that's where you want to be. When Jesus went down in the water, he was saying, here's the circle. The circle is a Christian who is always repenting. Always. Constantly. It was a baptism of repentance. And Jesus was saying, you want my favor? You want my smile? You want the smile of my father? Here's the circle. You live your whole life as a Christian who is constantly repenting. Constantly. Always making things right with God. Number two. The second reason Jesus went down into that water was to identify with the Holy Spirit. Ah, interesting. In just a few moments, the Holy Spirit's going to come. We'll look at that next week. And John had just said, John had just preached, I baptize you with water, but it's just a symbol of spirit fire baptism. One who's going to come and is going to baptize you in the Holy Spirit and with fire. So when Jesus comes down into the water, he's saying, I'm I'm the one who's going to do the baptism with the Holy Spirit. He's identifying with the Holy Spirit. Remember now, remember, I've told you this several times now. You're going to hear it several more times before I'm done. Jesus lived a perfect life, not because he was God. If Jesus lived a perfect life because he was God, all your, what would Jesus do? Bracelets and every attempt that you have to be like Jesus is a waste of time. He mocks you. He mocks us if he was able to live a perfect life because he was God. The Bible says he emptied himself in Philippians 2. When Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, left heaven and came to live here, became the baby that Ruthie prayed about this morning. When he became a baby, the Bible says he emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? His being God? No. He could still read people's minds. He still could do some Really great things like walking on water. That's pretty cool. He could do some pretty neat things, all right? So he's still God. What did he empty himself of? He emptied of himself of the ability to live a perfect life by himself. That's the only way Jesus could live a perfect life was he was totally yielded to the Holy Spirit. The exact same way you can live a perfect life. Not totally perfect. You understand what I mean? The only way you can walk close to God is you're totally dependent upon the Holy Spirit. That's what Jesus did. He's making a statement. I'm coming down into this water because I cannot live this life on my own. You just talked about the Holy Spirit, John. You just said the Holy Spirit 
is the one that's going to baptize with fire. I'm going to need the Holy Spirit. I have lived with Him all my life. I've lived the life I've lived because of Him. You talked about the Holy Spirit, so I'm coming into the water to let people know I am identifying with the Holy Spirit. And then number three. And yes, I'm preaching a little bit longer than usual today, but you're not listening quick enough. It's your fault. You've got to listen quicker. Number three. Jesus identified himself with John the Baptist. Poor old John. We know what's going to happen to John, don't we? Nobody's going to come to his aid when the dark day comes. While he's preaching, there's thousands of people all around. Everybody loves it. That's fine. That's great. But Jesus knows what's going to happen. So he walks down in the water to make sure everybody knows that even when this guy goes and loses his head, everybody's going to know who Jesus identified himself. Jesus, rather than identifying with the highfalutin religious leaders, identified himself with the ragamuffin John the Baptist crowd. And I need to ask you the question, is anybody in the crowd unwilling to be publicly identified with conservative Bible-believing Christians? Yeah, I'm embarrassed by us sometimes. Sure I am. We do some really stupid things. We're harsh sometimes. We're mean. I see it. I've preached against it for 57 years. I've given my whole life to trying to make Christians better. I understand. But I also know there comes a time when you have to let it be known which side you are on. Are you with God's people or not? We fight this battle often. When Moses came down from the mountain and they had made the golden calf, he divided the crowd. He said, who's on the Lord's side? Let him come to me. Joshua, just before he died, he said, now, folks, we're going to divide the crowd. You've got to choose. You're going to choose the gods before, the pagan gods, or are you going to serve the true God? And then he said, that's for me and my house. We're going to serve the Lord. And that little sign is on my front door. I try to live by that. From me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. On Mount Carmel, Elijah divided the crowd. He said, how long do you, do you stumble and halt between two opinions? If Yahweh is God, serve him. If Baal is God, then follow him. And this is what being baptized is a part of. Part of it is. A part of being baptized is you identify with sinners. You identify with the Holy Spirit. You receive the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the only way to be saved. But there's another part of it, and that is you from now on are saying, I'm not ashamed to be known as one of God's people, one of the people. I'm one of the group with all of our warts, all of our failures, all of our flaws. To be baptized entails being identified with believers. I wish if I had my way, if I had my way, we would run a horse trough, a water trough, and we'd put it on the farthest edge of our property, as close to Campbell Road, Campbell Avenue, as we could get it. We would set it right out there on the property line, and when church is over, we would all go out there. We'd put the names of the people being baptized on the church sign. We'd baptize them right there on Campbell Avenue so that the world could see. So that the world would say, here's some people that are not ashamed to be identified with Jesus and not, not ashamed to be identified with His people. I'd do it right out there. I'd have some cheerleaders come and cheer and 
do some things. I'm kidding about that. But still, you get the point. When I was a young preacher, First Baptist Church, New Orleans. New Orleans is a pagan city. It's rough, folks. It's tough. Went to seminary there. It was rough. First Baptist Church, New Orleans, built on the back of their church a glass baptistry. A glass baptistry right on a major road. So that every time they baptized, the people of New Orleans would see somebody in the water being baptized. Every time New Orleans First Baptist Church baptized, it was a statement to the city. Here's somebody that's not ashamed of Jesus, not ashamed of Jesus' followers. And that's what Jesus was doing right here. I one time, I remember one of the most memorable moments of baptisms in my life. I was baptizing a young medical school student. He's about to get married. He's going to be a physician. He's a wonderful young man. He'd just become a Christian. Oh, my goodness. He came to me and he said, Pastor, everybody I know, my family, my friends, I'm leaving a life of sin behind. He, he, just, he laid it out there. He said, every one of them will be at my wedding rehearsal. Will you baptize me? And folks, I'm telling you, all these medical students, all these important people lined up, family and everybody. I got to a certain point, and I just said, now, folks, he has become a Christian. And he wants you to know it. He's not ashamed of Jesus. He's not ashamed of us Jesus people. And he wants you to know. I told him they all sat down. He and I walked up into the baptistry. We changed clothes. I brought him out. I baptized him. You could have heard a pin drop in that place. He got it. He understood. Now I ask you. You've been baptized. Do you understand? You were lost and undone. Did you repent of your sin? Do you realize Jesus died? Jesus on the cross for you? Down, up for you? You understand? You've been baptized. Are you seeking the spirit fire baptism? Do you seek to be baptized in the Holy Spirit all the time? To be filled with this fire to purge your sin? And are you willing to be identified with one popular people? That's all I got. That's enough for today. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I wish I could preach better. I wish I could preach harder. I'm older than I used to be. I'm not as healthy. I'm a heart patient, as you know. I have to be careful. But I want you to know there's a passion that burns in me for him and for you. Every time I come here to preach, there's a passion for Jesus and a passion for you. Now, would you pray? I'm going to ask all of you to pray. You who are believers, I'm going to ask you to pray. Pray, 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 pray. And if you're not a Christ follower, somebody might have said something today in the music or in the message or something about the baptism. Thank you, Lord, for the two young ladies. Amen. Maybe there was something Brandy said in that that would cause you to be rethinking your decision for Christ. Maybe right now. You'd like to receive Jesus. If so, let me lead you in a prayer. Now, the prayer doesn't save you. It's not magic. But you'll, you'll understand. If, you, if you're repeating these words from your heart, you'll, you'll know that uh, you're surrendering life. So 
If these words say what you want to say, would you repeat it silently after me as I pray it out loud phrase by phrase. Dear Jesus, I am sorry for my sin. Please forgive me. Come live in my heart. I receive you as the master of my life. Amen.